You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. The topic we're here to talk about today is an issue that arises out of a recent decision of the Irish High Court, and that's Lyons and Longford Westmead Education and Training Board. And this is a decision that has very much sent shivers down the spines of employment lawyers, HR directors, and employers up and down the breadth of the country, because depending on how you read it, it certainly seems to suggest that employees may now be entitled to the full range of fair procedures, including the right to cross-examine witnesses and the right to legal representation at the preliminary investigation stage of a, of a disciplinary process. Now, since that decision, we've had two further decisions, which, again, depending on how you interpret lines, arguably contradict this entirely. So the question is out there now as to what is the current position of the law? How do we deal with this? And what are employers meant to do in the meantime? So before we get into it, though, what I want to do is just bring you through the facts of these three cases that we're looking at to give you a little bit of context about the issues that we're going to talk about. And the first of these decisions was the most controversial of all, and that is Lyons and Longford. In that case, it was a decision issued in May. Mr. Lyons was a a teacher in a secondary school in Longford, and he was accused of bullying by a colleague. As most of you will know, ordinarily when an employee is facing a, a disciplinary allegation or an allegation of this nature, the employer will have a preliminary investigation stage at which they'll gather the evidence to decide whether or not is there something here that is worth putting to a disciplinary hearing. It then goes to a disciplinary hearing. The employer will consider whether or not the allegations are substantiated, and if appropriate, a sanction will then be issued. However, in this case, unusually, and I think it was a function of the particular procedure within the organisation, the allegations against Mr Lyons were considered and decided upon at the preliminary investigation stage. At that point, he then brought an application to the High Court to restrain the employer from going ahead. And he had a number of grounds upon which he challenged it, but one in particular was that he had been denied his right to cross-examine the witnesses involved in these allegations. The employer defended this point on the basis that, under Irish law, at least up to that point as it stood, what the employer was saying was, under Irish law, employees were not entitled to fair procedures at the preliminary investigation stage. So there was no issue of an employee being entitled to cross-examine witnesses. There was no issue of the type of procedures you would see at the full disciplinary hearing stage. However, in the High Court, Justice Eager disagreed with the employer. And what Justice Eager said was, because in this particular case, the allegations were determined at the preliminary investigation stage, well, then that's when Mr Lyons needed the full range of fair procedures. In effect, there were no use to him after that event. So the High Court said he was fully entitled to the right to cross-examine the witnesses and fully entitled to the right to legal representation, including specifically the right to be represented by a solicitor or a barrister at that preliminary investigation stage. So that's the case that has very much thrown the cat amongst the pigeons. The next decision then is the first of two cases that seems to have gone against this. And they were all decided within the same four-week period None of them refer to each other, which is very unhelpful, so that's what leaves this issue unresolved. And in this case, it was an allegation against an actuary, a member of the Society of Actuaries in Ireland. Interestingly, it was an allegation of financial impropriety that was brought against him by his very own brother, which I'm sure is another story. Under the Society's procedures, the way it operated was very similar to an employment arrangement, in that there would be an investigating committee set up to determine 
if there was evidence of misconduct and if there was something here that warranted a disciplinary tribunal. And in that case, the investigating committee, after 12 months, determined that there was and put it forward to a disciplinary tribunal. So e.g. the applicant in this case challenged that, and one of his arguments was that he hadn't been allowed his right to cross-examine the witnesses at the preliminary investigation stage. And what happened here is where we see the divergence with the, the Lyons decision. In this case, Judge McDermott referred to a decision of the Supreme Court, O'Neill and the Law Society of Ireland from 2009. And in that case, the Supreme Court drew a very significant and helpful distinction between what it referred to as a fact-gathering exercise and a fact-finding exercise. And what the Supreme Court said was, if the initial stage is no more than a preliminary step to get the evidence together, at which point you'll then decide if there's something more to look into, well then the full range of fair procedures don't apply. If, however, it's a stage that can lead to an adverse finding or a possible sanction against the employee, well then fair procedures do apply. And on that basis, looking at the investigating committee stage from uh, the society's procedure, the court concluded, well, it was no more than a fact-gathering exercise, therefore fair procedures didn't apply and the applicant wasn't entitled to cross-examine the witnesses, so he failed in his application. So on that point alone, there's certainly a divergence between that decision and the Lyons one. The last decision then, interestingly, was decided by the very same judge 11 days later. And in that case, we had an employee again, a principal in a school in Limerick. He was accused of sexual harassment by a colleague and his application was a, a case to restrain the process from proceeding on a number of grounds, but again, in, based on the idea that he hadn't been allowed to cross-examine the witnesses involved. Given that it was the very same judge, it was 11 days later, it's no surprise that the judge decided it on the same basis and ruled that because it was no more than a fact-gathering exercise, fair procedures didn't apply in the full range and the right to cross-examine the witnesses didn't arise in that case. But there are two interesting additional points that came out of it. One helpful, one not so much. What the judge said was, even if in this particular case a certain part of the fact-gathering actually had gone on to become a fact-finding, what the judge said was it wasn't a final decision, it wasn't binding on the employer, and that it was still up to the CEO to decide whether or not to go with that. And on that basis, the court ruled that the employee's right to fair procedures hadn't really been activated in full. Unhelpfully for employers, what the judge did say, however, was that given the gravity of allegations against the employee, that if the matter went to a full disciplinary hearing, he would absolutely be entitled to cross-examine witnesses at that stage. And I suppose that's one of the key issues we want to look at today. So to my mind, we have three decisions, one going one way, two arguably going the other way, and it leaves the question unanswered. But there are four kind of key themes that I can take out of this. And that's what I want to look at in the questions today so we can tease them through. The first is the very simple question of, are employees now entitled to fair procedures at the preliminary investigation stage or not? Secondly, are employees now entitled to the right to cross-examine witnesses at a disciplinary hearing? Thirdly, are employees entitled to legal representation? And then fourthly, I want to just take a look at the difference between fact-finding and fact-gathering, because I think that is one of the real areas where a lot of employers fall into this trap, what probably in time will become known as the lion's trap. So I think it would be worth a while taking a look at that to see how can we avoid that and what can we learn from it. So I've left the panel there waiting long enough for the question. So Tom, perhaps I can start with you and ask you the very fundamental question. Do you think that the Lyons decision is as controversial as all the commentators seem to suggest? No. All right. Um, <laughs> Should we uh, pack up and go home, sir? No, no. 
Um, I, in fact, I, I don't think there's inconsistencies between the cases. Mm. Uh, I think there are subtle emphasis differences. I think the first thing that needs to be said is you, you, you comment that they were all delivered in four weeks, in a four-week period. I'd emphasise the fact that they were all delivered in a four-week period. They were not all heard in a four-week period or anything like it. In fact, the last one to be heard was the first one, was the Eager case. The Lions case? The, the, sorry, the Lions case okay. was the last one to be heard. The other two had been heard some <laughs> considerable time before but were somewhat slow in getting judgments out. And, and I'm just not aware whether the actuaries one or the Malone one was, uh, uh, which of those was first in time. Hmm. Uh, so I, I, bear, I think the fact that they're all issued at about the same time is, is kind of an irrelevancy, to be honest with you. It's not surprising that they don't refer to each other because even if you take the last two that are delivered th two or three weeks after the first one, it probably wasn't available when the judge was drafting his decision. Um, but to come back to the, the question, if we go all the way back to 1971 and a famous case called In Re Hohi, not Charles Hohi, but his brother Jock Hohi. And Jock Hohi was um, invited before the Dáil Public Accounts Committee to answer questions in relation to matters of importance at that time in 1970. Uh, in relation to Northern Ireland and funds and so on and so forth. Uh, and he uh, challenged the committee's power to ask him questions and the, under the relevant statute, if he refused to answer, he could be, um, in effect, be held to be in contempt. And he, he ch challenged that and the court said that he was entitled to natural justice and fair procedures when his reputation was at risk. Okay, so that not just in a court setting, but in a in that case in a committee of the Dáil, he was entitled to be protected, including the right to cross-examine his accusers, where his reputation, his good name and reputation were at risk. That principle, that Hahi principle, has developed in the fifty nearly fifty years since that time and has most particularly been developed in the employment area. Uh, and I think there's now no doubt that where an employee's job is at risk and his livelihood is at risk and perhaps his name is at risk as part of that, uh, that he is entitled to fair procedures. And the only issue that I think arises is how, what, what are those? What are fair procedures and when does he get them? And natural justice or fair procedures, I think, can be reduced to two well-known Latin legal maxim, maxims, um, audi, audi alterum partum, the other side shall be heard, and nemo iudax in causa sua, no man should be a judge in his own cause. They're the two principles, and think about those. They're a bit like, you know, love thy neighbour answers all of the other ten rules. If they're the two rules, let the other side be heard and don't be a judge in your own cause, then you won't go anywhere wrong. These issues are when does that happen and how does it happen? And do you have to have, are you in, have you an entitlement to be accompanied by your lawyer and so on? But leaving that, that piece aside, because if I disagree with Judge Eager in any way, it's probably in relation to that. I'm sorry, I'm not sure I disagree with them but I, I think he may just have gone a little bit further. 
uh, than the case law would suggest he should do. And in fact, he doesn't, he doesn't tease that out in any way. He just says it, right? Um, so the big thing that people say is you're entitled to challenge your accusers. Yes, of course you're entitled to challenge your accusers. That's what Hockey said. That's the principle. That's always been the principle. So that if I, if I am a fellow employee of you and I say you robbed the money, you robbed the boss's money, the man who's accused of that is entitled to challenge that. And I don't think you can criticise that. What Judge Eager says is you're entitled to do that at the investigation stage. He says, I think, the reason he says that is because looking at the procedure under which this investigation took place on a reading of it, and Judge McDermott in the other case didn't read it this way, but on a reading of it, he says you're not entitled to do it at the disciplinary stage because what the procedure says is that the investigation report will be sent to the chief executive and the chief executive will decide whether to adopt it or not. Hmm. And his interpretation of that was that if he was adopting it, then he was adopting the findings of it. And, and you are entitled to challenge your accusers before the findings against you are made. So in effect, he said, the findings are made in the investigation. That's when you are entitled to them. What Judge McDermott says is the findings weren't made and I have no doubt the chief executive will give you your fair procedures as your discipline. So if there's any dispute, it's the interpretation of the procedure under which mm. they were operating, which is drafted in industrial relations terms and therefore is open to different interpretations. So mm. I don't have any problem with the Lyons case. I have some comments and make later perhaps on the third question about legal representation. Des, if we can pass to you now, would you agree with Tom? Do you think it goes any further than what we've seen to date? Thanks, Brian. I suppose uh, put two barristers in a room and you'll never get them to agree, but I don't think Tom and I, in fact, disagree that markedly on this. What I would say just briefly about lines is that, in my view, it's extremely important to look at it in its context whereby it was brought as a judicial review. So we're talking there about the classic public law space where the courts are asking about the exercise uh, of uh, proportionality, fair procedures, uh, natural and constitutional justice in a public setting. This differs you know, greatly from most private employers and the kind of legal regime applicable through or through which uh, challenges to internal procedures uh, will be applied. So I think that's the first point that's really important to make about lines in the context of uh, you know, whether it, it is a significant change in the law to date. I would agree with Tom that the principles um, in relation to the right to, to uh, fair procedures can be traced back um, many decades. If I may, though, there's just a couple of sentences in the judgment which I think do bear scrutiny, and I won't read out at any great length the, the relevant passage, but the reason I do this is that the way in which the challenges come about in employment litigation is often because em employees and their representatives will fasten upon a particular comment made. I do think Mr Justice Eager has provided um, quite a bit of room here for interpretation to be placed on the extent of the rights. And just briefly, Justice Eager says, and for anyone uh, looking to refer to it, it's paragraph 97 and 98 of his judgment. He says, and I quote, it is clear that as a matter of law and as a matter of fair procedures, an individual whose job is at stake and against whom allegations are made will be entitled to challenge and cross-examine evidence. And he then goes on to point out that um, this was that the investigator here failed to do this. He then says, it is noted by the court that this is the process adopted by many companies when dealing with complaints against employees. 
it is quite clear that the exclusion of solicitors and counsel and the refusal to allow cross-examination under such policies is a breach of the constitutional right to fair procedures. And there are just two key points, I think, about that passage, which I would regard as being likely to provoke litigation. They are, first of all, the fact that the judge makes a leap, if I can put it that way, from the uh, specific failure he's talking about in terms of the right to challenge the evidence and cross-examine, he makes a leap from that to then the exclusion of solicitors and counsel. So he's, if you like, conflating the, the right to challenge and to test the case being made against you, which of course is a fundamental right inherent in any process where as long as fair procedure rights kick in, and I know we're coming to that, but the, the judge then leaps from that into um, the proposition that the exclusion of solicitors and counsel by all employers must be unconstitutional. I would question the validity of that proposition as a general point in relation to in-house internal employment procedures, again, normally operating in the private sphere of a private relationship between employer and employee. I would just add in relation to the historical case of uh, Hahi, which is a, a towering influence on this area of the law, and I don't discount it at all, but we are talking there about uh, tribunals and quasi-judicial tribunals. There is the, I think, the possibility of making the argument that the internal investigatory and disciplinary context in the employment situation can be distinguished. We have case law which says even at quasi-tribunal level, you're not always entitled to, to legal representation. And it seems to me to apply even more strongly than in the employment context. And the other point I think is to be noted here in relation just to how the case may be looked at is in the context of even after you've gone through all of the processes internally as the employer, if the individual, for example, then is dismissed and takes a case before the Workplace Relations Commission, the very statutory tribunal or body tasked with upholding the law in this area, that body itself doesn't necessarily allow cross-examination. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that that's another important sort of uh, factor to be considered in looking at uh, has Lyons gone too far in that proposition, in, that, in those paragraphs? I would believe it has, but I would also, I think, be in agreement with Tom that it may well be just an unfortunate matter of emphasis. And I think that um, a number of factors in this case, the strong criticism that the judge levelled against the um, procedure adopted, coupled with the fact that it was in this public law judicial review space in relation to the training board, um, are factors which hopefully will enable the case to be distinguished. Okay. So Niall, if I can turn to you now, there obviously was a lot of noise around the Lyons decision when it came out, in particular around this suggestion that there could be full fair procedures at the preliminary investigation stage and then the cross-examination and so forth. What have you been seeing over the last number of weeks since these decisions came out? Well, I've seen a succession of letters quoting the passages that uh, Des referred to um, just now that um, pretty much in, in any process, that is what will get quoted from in, in the initial solicitor's letter and they'll use that as a, really as a bridgehead now that we're seeing to really push the envelope on what this actually means which, um, and we'll talk about this more in, in detail, but it just gives rise to incredibly illogical results. Like, for example, I've, I've had a, a case recently where an employee solicitor citing Lyons as a basis to get involved in a performance management meeting and a, a PIP process, um, where in, in that particular case, the employee, as is often the case when they're subjected to performance management, has raised a, a bullying complaint against their manager. And actually, when you when you apply lines to its logical conclusion, because in that particular situation, the employee is only at final written warning stage, that the only person who's, who should be entitled to legal representation is the manager in that meeting because of allegations have been raised or bullying allegations have been raised against the manager. And that, 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 that can't be correct in terms of what we're 
we're seeing or how, how we're pushing back against that, we, you just have to take the view of hold the line that uh, at preliminary investigation stage, the uh, rights to fair procedures are simply not exercised. And, and that is certainly the, the position that we'd be taking, the, the position that the advice that we'd be giving to our clients. Cathy, of all of us, you're probably closest to the coalface. How about you? Are you seeing any impact from this decision amongst employees or are you hearing anything anecdotally? Well, I think it's, it's, it's probably a not yet. It is, as you said, it's pretty fresh. I haven't seen any impact myself yet, fortunately. But it is coming up in discussions when I meet my peers um, who work at other organisations. I, I do think as it's a wait and see. I don't think anyone is changing their approach in terms of their internal procedures. I think people perhaps are tightening up their definition of what investigation means, what disciplinary means. But to date, I, I haven't seen anyone making any changes. I, and I think it is a wait and see and see who's going to appeal it. <laughs> and who's going to move first. I think yeah. at that, that's where we are. Okay. So moving on then just to the, more specifically, the right to cross-examine. Uh, can, can I just, before you leave that, just to, to pick up on something that Cathy has said, is that, and, and to feed into my own thesis, that this isn't really that different. Can I give you another quote from a case back in 2007 uh, by then-Judge Clark of the High Court, now the Chief Justice, in a case called Minock and Irish Casing Company, and he said, and I just plucked this out uh, apropos what you said, as has been pointed out in some of the authorities, the range of preliminary inquiries that can be conducted may flow from one end of the scale where there is a pure investigation with no findings of any sort are made on behalf of the inquirer other than to determine whether there is um, sufficient evidence or material to warrant a formal disciplinary process. And it seems clear to on all of the authorities that that type of pure investigation, which does not involve any findings, is not a matter to which the rules of natural justice apply, and it is not a matter, therefore, which the court should interfere with. The fact that an employee may be obliged as a matter of his contract of employment to assist in any such investigation does not confer on it the status of an inquiry which carries with it an obligation to act in accordance with the rules of natural justice. At the other extreme, there are inquiries which can make formal findings which may, for example, be part of a statutory process or the like, in respect of which it does appear on the balance of authorities to be settled that the rules of natural justice do apply, and it may well be that in those circumstances the court would need to consider whether it's appropriate to intervene. Okay, and it goes on to say. So, in fact, I think that's picking up precisely the point. It's a lack of clarity and definition about what the investigation is. Hmm. If the investigation is to make findings of right or wrong, to uh, assign blame, then natural justice will apply. If it's merely to gather the information to hand it over to a decision-maker, then it won't. So, you know, I think it can go back. It's only 10 years, but you can generally say, and I'm not just saying this because he's appointed Chief Justice in the last couple of weeks, but you want a, you want a view on this, look at Frank Clark in the last 10 or 15 years, and you'll find it somewhere because he's spoken very uh, well on most of these points. And I think he's anticipating this discussion here uh, 10 years ago. Mm. And it's very similar to the point from the Supreme yes. Court decision against the Law Society as well. Exactly. The same distinction. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, it, it, it's degree. Yeah. And, and sometimes, let be blunt and at the risk of this being published, sometimes judges go a bit too far and the, and the next judgment will haul it back a little bit. But if anything, over time, they move forward, right? And maybe Judge Eager has gone a little bit too far and maybe he'll come back. But in another 10 or 15 years, people will be saying, which well, sure, Judge Ego was saying that 10 years ago. Mm. Mm. 
So if we can move on now to the, the issue around the right to cross-examination, because I think in a practical sense that's the one that has most employers and HR directors really concerned. So Niall, if I can go back to you again, is that something we are now seeing more employees looking for? Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I, the right to know the identity of your accuser is, is obviously something that uh, has always been um, pushed back. So if there's a complaint, who's the complaint by and, and all of that. And in terms of cross-examination, you would occasionally have received demands to, to cross-examine, which you, you would tend to push back on from, from an employer's perspective um, historically. But now, as a result of uh, the case and unequivocal language within the case about the right to cross-examine being a, a fundamental component of, of fair procedures, it is very much being advanced in a, in a positive sense. And in fact, often advanced in a strategic sense as well, in that the prospect of forcing people to go under cross-examination or forcing an employer to put people under cross-examination is almost used as a bargaining chip to try and procure perhaps a, a less draconian sanction than dismissal or, or something like that. So the, the quid pro quo for saying we're not going to proceed to dismissal or dismissal isn't on the cards means that you're not putting your employees under the prospect of, of, of cross-examination. So it's creating a sort of cat and mouse type situation at the moment where that actually will lead to in the in the future remains to be seen, but but certainly that's what we're seeing. We have a case where I think 16 witnesses are being demanded that they're being produced for the purposes of cross-examination. That simply wouldn't have happened uh, three months ago. It just would have been batted back and said, no, absolutely not. You probably wouldn't even have seen it in the letter three months ago. Yeah. It's all as a result of this. Cathy, can you see Irish employers even going for this, even if the law does say you are required to do it? Are employers actually going to do this or can they? I think Irish employers are, to are talking about what it means and trying to understand what it means and will be coming, no doubt, to talk to all of you to get advice on such matters. I, I think it does raise a lot of consequences for HR departments and internal legal departments around how they're going to do this. And then the knock-on effect is back into the employee population of what, what impact is it going to have on employees who have grievances? So I think when you try and balance the fairness to both those raising the grievances and those against whom the grievances are raised, it's going to become very onerous on employees to, to meet the needs of all groups. So I think it's all still to be considered. And back to the point I said earlier, I think companies are going back to the disciplinary processes to tighten up the definitions to try and make sure at different stages they're doing what they can to avoid some of this stuff applying. And when we discussed this before, um, you made a point in regard to the impact it's likely to have on retention and recruitment. Yeah. Would you like to share that with everybody? What I was kind of thinking, I was reflecting on, on it over the weekend, and it's that piece around, you hear that st uh, phrase all the time, don't you? Employees leave managers. Employees don't leave companies. They leave managers. They leave teams. So, you know, if I'm an employee, I, I want to rave a grievance. Am I going to raise a grievance if I'm going to be cross-examined? Maybe I'm not. I'm going to vote with my feet, perhaps. And if I vote with my feet, that was my experience in that company. So if anyone asks me, you know, that's how Ireland does work. People will often get their references from over a, over a cup of coffee with someone, then perhaps through more formal routes. So shall I go and work for Company X? Well, that employee's experience may not have been wonderful. Um, similarly, and, and if they choose to stay, if they can't leave for whatever reason, they risk become, becoming disenfranchised, disengaged, sick, absent. So what happens to those employees? And, and then I kind of further thought about that. And I haven't fortunately been involved in too many in grievances over my career, but I reflected back on those that I was involved in. 
And I would say for every one that I've been involved in, there's one that could have been taken, but the employee chose not to before any of this happened. So just fear of retaliation, just genuine employee fear, they chose not to take it. But when I reflect on those that did take it, I would say between 30 and 50% wouldn't if they felt they were going to be cross-examined. So for me, it's the impact on those employees who want to take a grievance and they're going to really consider it much more deeply and I think are on the side of not taking it. And that's where I would have concern from a recruitment and a retention perspective. And it'll only be small groups of people and it'll be very hidden. But the issue is employees will leave and you won't even know why. You may not even know. You may not even no. know. But they will then tell other people once they've left and the yeah. employer gains a bad reputation. Yeah, it's that customer thing. If you have a great experience, you might tell a couple of people. If you've had a bad experience, I think you tell eight to ten people. So, Tom, turning back to you, do you think as a matter of law an employer can even compel an employee to turn up and subject themselves to cross-examination? Because we've had a look at it and we certainly not overview. Well, unless he has a contractual obligation, a contractual right to do it, uh, he doesn't have any, any public law right to do it. Hmm. But if the non-availability of that witness undermines the process, hmm. then the, that's the price the employer pays for that, for not having that power. And specifically, I suppose that is my next question. Maybe, Des, I can throw that one to you. What happens if the employer, in order to look fair and acting appropriately towards the employee says, of course you can have the right to cross-examine. Tell me who you'd like us to produce and then none of the employees actually want to turn up for the disciplinary hearing, which is probably what will happen. What does that mean then? Is the employer required to disregard their advice or can the employer go on the balance of probabilities? Everybody is saying one thing, he's the only person saying the other. In the whole, it seems credible. Well, uh, there, again, I think it's Thomas just made the point that the, clearly the position of the employer is considerably weakened and a price has to be paid that reflects that, bearing in mind, of course, that the in terms of if, if it's ever scrutinised, for example, by the Workplace Relations Commission, the test is not what the Commission would do, but um, whether the employer acting reasonably in terms of a band of responses open to it in general, it, you know, just on the assumption that this leads ultimately to dismissal, for example. Um, but certainly the non-availability of key witnesses, and again, a lot turns obviously on the, the nature and the substance of the allegation being made, but the non-availability or non-cooperation of key witnesses potentially is going to make it very difficult for the employer to proceed in those circumstances safely, in my view, uh, although there may well be other considerations, which I think is a very interesting feature of Lyons, and again, maybe one of the unforeseen consequences if the judgment were to be applied very broadly as to what the judgment might mean for managing the cross-examination of other employees, not the accused person, but perhaps the complainant, and that perhaps flows from, from that question. So what will probably happen in practice is that employers will take an informed risk assessment on that basis, that they're not going to be as black and white as to say, we have to disregard those five employees' evidence because they were unprepared to submit themselves to cross-examination, because in many cases the employer may have a broader agenda and they may want to move the process along. Des, if I can put one other question to you, and it's actually just moving off slightly into the world of protected disclosures. How does this fit with the whole statutory entitlement to make an anonymous protected disclosure under the, yes. the legislation? And that's another very interesting angle, I think, of, again, a potential unintended consequence of lines. And I suppose just setting the scene on that, what it says, I think we'd all accept that where the courts give decisions in relation to how employers can or uh, cannot deal with their employees internally, they should be extremely wary about 
taking decisions or issuing judgments which are going to sort of con conflict or cause friction with existing statutory regimes to which employers are beholden. And I think that's a very good example, Brian. So the Protective Disclosures Act in Section 16 um, confers or allows for anonymity in relation to a person making a protected disclosure. Uh, and if we just think that through, uh, now, of course, there's a distinction, as we all know, between a protected disclosure and a grievance, but because of the very broad definition of relevant wrongdoing, it's not inconceivable that you could have somebody making a protected disclosure which could lead to a specific complaint being investigated in relation to an individual um, in connection with whom the, the original um, person making the disclosure or the complainant uh, has themselves had uh, interaction or, or friction. So in that circumstance, we have this strange situation where, on the one hand, we have the case law um, asserting strongly this right to challenge and cross-examine, uh, and yet we have the statute um, asserting the right <coughs> excuse me, to remain anonymous. Now, the answer probably is in sensible construction of the section. Section 16 talks about the employer being able to um, dispense with anonymity, for example, where the, I think the wording is where it's necessary for an effective investigation to take place. And then there's another subsection in that section which talks about where, uh, you know, if required by law, the anonymity can be waived. So arguably, if, if Lyons gives rise to, to future cases and is endorsed, then the legal position will be such that the anonymity in that instance could be waived. But I think it just goes to that point that the, you know, you know it just seems to me one of the pro dangers about this decision, if it's interpreted too broadly, is that it could collide with other regimes. And if on that actually, if I could just mention as well, but I think of it, um, if you think of a classic, we're all so familiar with the situation of the employee who makes a complaint of bullying and harassment. If you think about often the essence of bullying and harassment, that's been complained about is that this person was intimidating, uh, they were undermining in their demeanour towards me. So if that's the substance of the complaint which gives rise to an investigation and suddenly the complaint is told, you're now going to meet uh, the uh, accused person who wants to cross-examine you vigorously and robustly, uh, you know, the very characteristics of which are often uh, to undermine and intimidate. Um, that just seems to, to sit very uneasily with the, the common law protection whereby, you know, if, if by that stage you've received the medical certificate um, absenting the individual complainant for work-related stress, um, you are then, in the language of the case law, on notice that this person is vulnerable. They have specifically said to you that the cause, the trigger for um, their stress-related condition relates to complaints they've made in relation to intimidation and harassment. And in an attempt to try to uh, adhere to these precepts in Lyons, you'd in fact be subjecting the person to even more intense intimidation and harassment. That seems to me to be utterly unsustainable and it couldn't have been the intention of the court. It's another reason why I think this judgment is likely to be distinguished or potentially um, uh, uh, rolled back from to some extent in the later cases. Okay. Cathy, if we can turn back to you now and just move on to the topic of the, the right to legal representation. Tom has already made the point that this one perhaps isn't as solid as the right to cross-examination. Have you ever come across a scenario in any of the employers you've worked with where they have allowed lawyers into a, a disciplinary hearing or a grievance investigation or anything like that? No, no. But I've known where, like, I was just thinking about what Tom just said there. I've known, you can tell when there's a lawyer or one of those employer advisors in the background. You can tell it immediately when the letters change. Um, <laughs> and you guys all know what I mean. So you can tell when they're getting very good advice and the way in which they ask questions, the information they ask for is clearly not coming from them, it's coming from someone else. But personally, to date, I haven't experienced someone with getting legal representation at a hearing or anything like that. 
And Tom, you touched upon one advantage of having the lawyers in there is that they can almost do a quality control on the process for you and you get to fix it there and yeah, then. Yeah, but I think I need to say I've never seen anybody getting legal representation, I said earlier, as a, as a grievance or a management, you know, a, a PIP or something like that. Uh, I, I think the, if there is a right to legal representation, it's only in a serious disciplinary matter where the job is on the line. And one other advantage, I suppose, of, of having a lawyer at the disciplinary hearing or at any stage is if it's a case you've already decided should be settled or you want to settle, it's the quickest way of getting the parties to knock their heads together. Well, that's the other thing I think you could say. You put two lawyers in a room, they'll try and settle it if they can. And that's when, I, yeah, that's when the lawyers come to play. It's, it's, I've seen the lawyers, it's, it's towards the latter stages when you're talking settlements. But if I, and just briefly on that, if I could say, just, just in relation to like, no one would deny that there are deficiencies in the existing statutory regime for unfair dismissals. So, for example, we see how seldom the remedy of reinstatement or re-engagement even is awarded. But it doesn't necessarily follow from that, that because we have an imperfect model of legal redress for the wrong of dismissal, that that should require an equality of arms analysis internally, and in particular that it should lead to a situation where the courts are dictating to employers how they must uh, conduct internal procedures where, and uh, I suppose just on that, I'm just, just conscious as well of the, the comments made in the, the Roughly case, the other big sort of benchmark case this year on bullying and harassment where the court was at pains to say, the Supreme Court of course, as opposed to the, the High Court here, uh, was at pains to say that they did not want to develop the law on bullying in such a way as would undermine or interfere with the ability of an employer to press on with disciplinary and with invest internal machinery of its investigations to do so would be wrong and would be to essentially usurp the function that uh, an employer has and to prevent it from actually properly running its business. So it's definitely a balance. Not, I'm not for a minute obviously condoning um, ready-up situations or circumstances of egregious unfairness, but we also do see in the cases that those are examples of cases where reinstatement is very properly ordered, albeit rarely. And I think there's the point from the roughly decision is what employers will perhaps be relying upon in trying to control the advance of the right to cross-examination and legal representation, that it's not an absolute right. There will be some degree of reasonableness still in it. But if we can just move on to the last point then in regard to fact-finding and, and fact-gathering. Uh, Niall, if I can go back to you, in a practical sense, what is the difference? What does it look like? Well, um, I suppose a fact-gathering investigation is, is one in which a final conclusion has not actually yet been reached, that um, there's still room for an employee to influence the final factual conclusion, whereas in a fact-finding investigation, the decision as to what happened has already been made, and all that actually remains to do is actually to implement that decision. So if you have a, uh, an investigation, and this is where the, the, the problem arises, because nearly all employment situations should be a fact-gathering investigation because it's trying to assess what the facts are, talk to the people involved, and then to assess, okay, is there potential ground for, for disciplinary action as a result of this? But oftentimes what happens is that the investigation report becomes more of a prosecution report, and the, the investigator feels compelled to, to reach conclusions that, based on the, on the facts, I find that uh, Johnny did this, or, or Mary did that, or, or, or whatever the conclusion is. And that's where you get into difficulties. Because it's, uh, as Tom pointed out earlier, an investigation report, a fact-gathering report should be, these are the facts, there, there appears there may be a disciplinary case to answer, and then you pass it on to the disciplinary decision-maker to ultimately uh, arrive at those factual conclusions. 
And Cathy, in industry, what would be the norm? Well, what I'm, I'm used to that, that fact gathering to a point and then assessing whether it's enough to pass it on to, to the next independent objective group of people, very much with the objective of fairness to both parties in mind, so getting two sets of eyes on it completely independent of each other. So that's definitely what I'm more used to doing. I think the other challenge for HR people is, is investigations in the capability of those doing the investigations. So it's tricky, you know, it is tricky. And how capable are our teams? Have, have they done them before? Do they know what they're doing? Do they know the difference? So when they produce reports, do they know when? So th there's a lot of things to consider in there, but I'm definitely used to what Niles just described there. Okay. Tom, um, in fact, just on that, yeah. uh, the, the, the number of people who use the phrase fact find incorrectly as, as the, the title, yeah. and, and, that, and that creates a difficulty, even though, in fact, what they intend is fact gathering. Mm. Yeah. But, but this, this phrase, um, where you're invited to a fact find, mm. you know, yeah. uh, and it's become a noun in its own right, uh, and it needs to be done away with. Yeah, new new words. Yeah, new words. <laughs> new words. Uh, yeah, I mean, rehash, relook at the uh, the terminology. There may not be an awful lot wrong with the with the process, but it just needs to be yeah. you know, clearer. You know, define the stages, use the language correctly. And it should be flagged from the outset oh, yeah. precisely yeah, yeah. what what this process yeah, is and what will be justice at the next yeah, stage. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Tom, going back to the, the last, uh, the, the three decisions we looked at, the Clare and Limerick one, we had this curious situation where the judge said, even though there was an element of fact-finding, because somebody else was going to make the final binding decision on it, it wasn't a huge problem. To, to yes. me, that seems a little bit unsafe to be trying to rely upon that. What, what would your view well, be on well, that? I, I think because the judge took the view, um, uh, and I, I could find the precise words, but my, my, my memory of the wording is that he said, but he undoubtedly will get the natural justice at that stage, hmm. you know? So he was happy that that was going to happen. Hmm. And, and therefore, you know, I think you can summarise it. You have to get natural justice at some stage. And if you don't make it clear that you will get it in the second stage, then, as is held in Lyons, you were entitled to it at the first stage. In fact, you'd start to ask, why do we have two stages? I mean, in the, in, up until maybe 10 or 15 years ago, you, you know, you called the fellow in, the boss did everything, uh, he, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that in my view. There's nothing wrong with the investigator being the decision maker. Hmm. I don't think there has to be two separate ones. But we now seem to have developed a whole industry of investigators and and two-stage process. Two-stage processes. It's probably gone beyond mm. uh, recovery. But if, if we have two-stage processes, and I think they probably are better on balance, right? We just need to make it clear that this is what will happen at the first stage, this is what will happen at the second stage, this is what will happen at the appeal. I mean, you can, you can also get into the same argument, is if you just say, and you will have an entitlement to an appeal. What kind of an appeal? Is that a full rehearing? Is that just an appeal as to whether it's, it, you know, it, it, it just went too far. Is it an appeal on, on sentence only, so to speak, to use the criminal phrase? Uh, that should be, you know, a, 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 an appeal will be whatever it'll be. And again, in the same way, if you want the different kinds of appeal, you'll find Judge Clark has set them out. I can't remember off the top of my head the name of the case, but he describes all the different kinds of appeal you can. So if we can just draw all of those points together, I've tried to preempt what everybody was going to say here and, and hazard a guess. So I think what we would say is that Lyons is by no means conclusive authority for that 
to the view that employees are now entitled to a full fair procedures at the preliminary investigation stage, and in fact we would be hotly contesting that. If it's a fact-gathering only stage, then the fair procedures point doesn't arise. It, it's in line with the previous law. The decisions, and we have two of them in particular, do confirm that the right to cross-examination is there. It's not new, as Tom says, but bizarrely, this line of case law has broken it back up, and it does look like employees have remembered that it's there and it's now part of the reality. And interestingly, there was a decision from the WRC last week which had the very unmemorable name of an employee versus a manufacturing employer. And in that case, the adjudication officer referred specifically to Lyons and the Clare and Limerick decision as High Court authority for the fact that employees are entitled to cross-examination. So it, it is now the new reality. The other point then is to avoid Lyons, to avoid falling into that trap at the investigation stage, it's quite simple, actually. You just make sure it's fact-gathering only and it's not fact-finding. And if you keep that distinction in mind, then you shouldn't fall into the trap. So I think the advice to build on that that we would be giving employers is definitely resist any request for fair procedures at the investigation stage if it's on foot of lines, if all you're doing is a fact-gathering process. To resist cross-examination or legal representation, and that's not going to be easy, and this is a strategic call in each case, but if you are really concerned about allowing that to creep into the workplace, well, then you have to make a decision. Do you decide at the outset that your sanction isn't going to be anything more than a verbal warning or a first written warning? And you, you give up effectively the right to dismiss that employee. And that feeds back into the point Niall and I, and I have seen about solicitors using this to plea bargain, that the solicitor will say, OK, well, we won't look for cross-examination if you agree that whatever happens, it's not going to be any worse than a first written warning. I would hold off on revising any disciplinary procedures specifically until things pan out. I agree with you, Tom, this is new, but there's a lot of focus on it now. Uh, and I think I would still take the wait and see approach because even if you are going to allow it, if the lawyer requires you to allow it, you don't necessarily have to publicize it internally and bring it to employees' attention. So I think it will be very interesting to see where we are in 12 months' time on this, if our advice will change, if there is going to be a whole lot of new case law on it. At this stage, all I can do is thank the panel for their, their time and, and everybody for their interest in tonight's topic. It has been very useful, informative for us all, and I hope you found it as, as useful as well. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.